Uh, we started a series last week uh, that we call Survey Says, and it is my favorite series of the year for many reasons, but the biggest reason is because you picked this series. And so every Easter, if you've been to one of our Easter services, uh, we have a survey that we give out to everyone and we collect information. Um, and then we sell it to Amazon and it helps with some of our bills. And uh, no, <laughs> no we, we, uh, we do a survey. We wanna make sure we got everybody's correct information. But on that survey is a question. If there's any topic that you wanna hear taught on um, in the Bible or not in the Bible, what is it? And so we, uh, we've, we've had quite a bit of those turned in over the last several years. And, uh, and there's a few that always are on the list. Last week was the number one. If you were here, um, it's usually, it's worded, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed. What do I do with worry? I'm, I'm a little depressed. What's going on? What does the Bible say about anxiety? And so we, we tackled that topic the best that we could in 30 minutes last week. Um, and so if you wanted to check that out, um, it, you can go online and check that out. But today is, um, I want to read a few of the questions because I feel like they all are asking maybe the same thing. But this is what you asked. This is right off the survey. How can I be relative and biblical in today's culture? It's a good question. How can I be Christ-like in a world that seems to be very unchristlike? Another great, great question. What is the responsibility of the Christian in today's culture? So, so what, is my, what is my responsibility? Am I to, you know, what does that look like? Do I have a responsibility? It's a great question. How do I help a world that is in crisis? And I really like this one. This is probably my favorite one, and we're, we're going to zone in today. How do we stay influential in a post-Christian culture because there's a difference between a non-Christian culture and a post-Christian culture. A non-Christian culture would be to get on a plane, go to a remote tribe somewhere in South Africa that's never heard the gospel, a non-Christian culture. They've never heard the gospel. They don't know who Jesus is. They've never heard the word Christ, don't know what a Bible is, and so they're living their life pretty siloed, and so they've never heard the gospel, a non-Christian culture. But a post-Christian culture, that's a little different. That's a culture that was Christian at one time. That's a culture that built churches, and it was established upon the Bible and the Word of God, but has taken that revealed truth of the Bible and said, I don't think that we like this anymore. <laughs> and you see this all throughout the world. You've seen this all throughout history. Um, you can go to Europe now, and there's massive cathedrals that were once churches that have been transformed into other things, clubs. Um, you know, multi-use facilities, you know, so, so we've watched cultures that were founded upon biblical values and they've kind of turned away from it. And so living in that type of culture is much more challenging than a non-Christian culture. Um, because what begins to happen is when you, when you say, you know, I am a Christian and I believe the Bible, well, you automatically, you're, you're a magnet for criticism. Some of you may have felt this already. That, you know, you, you, if you just living for Christ and saying, you know, I, I believe the Bible is, is God's word. It's, and it's, it's perfect. It's inerrant. There's no error. Just, just saying that right now can attract criticism. And unfortunately, if we look at the numbers in the U.S., they're not, they're not, they're not on the upswing anymore for Christianity. You know, there's, there's less people that since they've been recording in the United States that consider themselves a Christian in history. Their largest religious group right now in the United States is known as nuns. 
not nuns, N-U-N-S, uh, you know, but, but, but N-O-N-E-S. So when they, when they, when they ask someone, hey, uh, you know, what is your religious preference? They don't have one, none. And so they, they weren't raised in Sunday school. And they, did, you know, they, they, they don't know what, really what the Bible has to say about, about anything. They're largely uneducated when it comes to the Bible. And so that's a large group of our culture. And so how do we, how do we influence culture? Well, we get signs and we stand on the corner and we yell at people. That's how we do it. No, no, no. See how that works for you. Uh, no, no. I, you know, how, how do we? I mean, that's a great question. I think when the church is, is operating at its highest potential, the church is creating culture. If you look at the church, you follow it throughout the last several, you know, 2,000 years, that when the church is really that light on a hill, it's, it's creating culture. The world is coming to the church for ideas. We've seen some massive Christian movements in the last 100 years. The first global Protestant movement of Christianity happened. It was Hillsong. Their music, you've probably heard of them, it started in Australia, small little church, and, and then went global. And at the peak of Hillsong, the, uh, Brian Halston, who was the founder of Hillsong, talked about how in Sydney, businesses were writing them letters, contact, contacting them, asking them how they were marketing their church. <laughs> like, like the world wanted to know, what are you doing? How are you making this thing work? How did you take this small little, thank you, this small little church and, and, and go global with it? Why? Because the, the world took notice. And they, they wanted answers from the church. But today, I think it's, you know, it's a little bit different. And, and I, I was, I've been really trying to find the best approach to this. And I think there's a, diff, you know, a couple different ways that we can st you know, start this journey. And, and we've seen this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet sent to a post-God-serving a post -God -serving culture. And so Jeremiah, if, if, if you want to do any more research on this, you can. But Jer Jeremiah also wrote a book called Lamentations, and he's known as the Weeping Prophet because he brought this message of repentance and he brought this message to the culture of that day, and, and he, was, he was thrown into the bottom of the prison for it. And he was known as a weeping prophet because he was speaking truth to a world that didn't want to hear it. And so, and, and so Jeremiah, but, but I think where I want to go today, we're just going to spend a few minutes in, in the book of Romans because I think that's the best illustration that we have of how to, re, how to reach a, a post-Christian culture. Now, just for a minute before we jump in, think about this. You know, Paul has never been to Rome. And so in, it's around A.D. 57 when he's writing the book of Romans, and he's writing it to, to the church that existed there. And he's in Corinth writing this letter. And so if you want to turn to Romans 1, we're just going to stay right in the first few verses of Romans 1. And he's writing this letter to, to, this, to this culture, but he's writing it to the church. And he's never been there. So all this is secondhand information that he's hearing about what's happening in the culture. So he's writing this letter. He, he's never been. And just to give you a little bit of history of what Rome looked like in A.D. 57. Okay, just to give you a little bit of history. The, the, the emperor was a guy named Nero. Now, he was married to an adolescent. His name was Sporus. He was underage. And he had, he had switched his gender to a female. Had a ceremony at the palace, at the temple, for the whole city of Rome to see. And he married this, which was a boy, and 
transferred his sexuality over to a female. And he was the leader of Rome. For 200 years, Rome promoted open, um, they abused children, I'll just say that, for several hundred years. Nero later divorced that young boy that he switched genders and married another man, and then he became the female in the relationship. So just give you a little bit of a glimpse of the culture. Is that okay? Some of you look at me like, are you serious? I'm serious. This is, this, is, this is the culture that Paul is writing to. And so he's writing to the church, and, and he, he defines the culture in the first few verses of Romans 1. I'm going to read just a couple verses. This is verse 21. But I want you to underline this in your Bible because I think this is what's important. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they didn't glorify God or give him thanks because they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, number one, I just want you to see something before we jump any farther into this. That, that, that Paul is writing to the church here. And he's writing to a church that at one point knew God, but they came and they fell away from that relationship. Paul's not taking stabs at the culture here. Paul's not throwing rocks at the culture here. He's addressing the church. Now, I didn't know that there was a church in Rome. I thought Paul was the first church planner. I, I had to look this up myself. Apparently, some Jews, after Pentecost, went to Rome and started a church. And so there was an existing church in Rome, and Paul is writing, and he's saying, hey, you knew God, but this is what happened. You stopped bringing him glory, and you stopped being thankful. So there was no worship happening in the house of worship anymore. It's very traditional, just going through the motions, very dry, very stale, and they became foolish in their heart. Their hearts were darkened, and their minds became foolish. Verse 22, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They began to just worship creation instead of the creator. And then this is what happened. God gave them and the culture over the sinful desires of their hearts, sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, the, the better translation of that would be they exchanged, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. It was singular. When Paul wrote it in the original letter, it was one, it was the lie. Now, what is the lie? Well, the lie is all the way back in Genesis. The first, the first, it was the, the, the enemy's first temptation, his first attack on humanity was, hey, eat of this knowledge, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you're going to be God. You can make your own judgments. You can be the center of the universe. You can be your own moral compass. You, you, that was the lie. And he's saying this church brought, bought in, and the church in Rome bought into the lie, and they exchanged the truth of God for this lie. They put themselves in the center, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. All right, so it's real quiet in here. Some of y'all are nervous. That's okay. Now you asked, I'm going to just keep saying this. You asked for this, okay? This is, this is, uh, this is, this is your, the question. I want to answer it the best I can. And so this church had fallen into idolatry. And the culture was paying the price for it. Paul was not writing to throw stones at the culture. 
Paul was not writing to judge the culture. Paul was writing to the church. And there's some disappointing things that happen when the church falls away from truth. When the church falls away from truth. When the church takes you know, what's right and wrong into their own hands, when man places himself at the center of the universe, bad things begin to happen. Not only do they begin to happen within the church, but they unravel and they begin to happen in the streets. And if you read you know, the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about it. He called it death in the city. And that's what he travailed and he wept over the city of Jerusalem because of the violence and the blood that was being shed in the city. And, and, and he said, you know, death in the city, it really began, though, in the church house. When the church house got away from truth and got away from revealed truth in their life and took kind of their own life in their own hands and said, I think I know how to do this better than God does. Does it sound similar at all? And so Paul opens up his book, and this is in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. How did Paul show up to this culture and to this church to help guide them in the right direction? I think he gives us that pretty simply and very clear in the first verse. He doesn't show up as Paul, the savior of Rome, right? He doesn't show up like Maximus and Gladiator, like I'm, I'm here to take back what was stolen and, and I'm going to come in with a sword and we're going to take this back and, and from these evil leaders. That's not how he shows up and that's not his posture at all. He opens up the book of Romans with this one little phrase, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Not Paul, God's police officer, <laughs> not, not Paul, an agent of the Holy Spirit, come to sanctify everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he, he didn't open that way. He says, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. Now, there's many different words used for servant in the New Testament. Uh, this, this word is a special word. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's, it's doulos. And it basically means somebody who's devoted to another one and they disregard their own interests. It was used to describe an employee or someone who would work for, for a, an employer for a certain amount of time. And when their contract was up, rather than leaving and finding another employer, they stayed. They were a doulas. They wanted to stay. They were joyful in their job. They were joyful in what they're doing. And so what Paul is describing here is a posture of humility, a posture of brokenness, not a posture of I have it all right and you have it wrong, but he came in like a servant. And this word's used in different places in the New Testament. One of them is in Mark 9. The disciples are sitting around with Jesus and they're asking him questions like, hey, Jesus, um, when you leave, can I be like the CFO? Because I've probably given up more than everybody else and I really want a good position in the, in the leadership structure when you're gone. And so they're talking to each other about titles. And then Jesus uses this word again, and he says this to them. He sat down, and he summoned the 12 together. He said, all right, boys, I know you're worried about titles and your compensation and who's going to be first and second and third. But if you want to be first place, he says, I want you to take the last place. Be the doulos, right, of everyone. To have this mindset that I'm here to serve. I'm here to give. Another place where this word is used is in John 13. And I don't know if there's anyone that's influenced culture more than Jesus did. And so he's getting ready to leave and he's wanting to set a precedent with his disciples. 
He's been preparing them. Hey, I've got to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back. It's not going to be forever. The disciples didn't like that. And so he has the last request, one last request before he goes to the cross. He says, I says, he told him to go and secure an upper room. He wanted to have a meal with his friends. But it was more than just a meal. He, he was trying to, he was, he was imparting something to them. And he it says after they, he gets all the disciples together. And he, and he, he takes off his, his outer garment is what the Bible says. Takes off his outer garment. Now his outer garment would have let everybody know that he was a priest. His outer garment would have let everybody know he was a rabbi, that he was a spiritual leader. It was his, it was his, it would have kind of showed his position. And he took that off, and he took a basin and some water, and he got down with a towel, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. It's okay. Throw me that towel. So everybody wants a title, and they think, well, if I get enough power, I'll influence people. But Jesus said, get rid of your title and pick up a towel. You want to influence culture? You're not going to do it from that kind of standpoint. He says, you're going to do it when you humble yourself and you get low. I'll never forget, I used to, uh, I pastored in Defuniac Springs for a couple years. I don't think I'll ever do that again, but uh, it was, uh, I was just starting out, and I was, I was learning, and it was great, and, um, you know, I learned a lot, and, and, and so, the, 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 you know, back then, uh, when the church I was serving at, we had two services every Sunday. We had Sunday night church, and we had Sunday morning church, right? Anybody ever been to a church? You know, Sunday night church was just as important. Okay, uh, you came to church on Sunday night. That was like, that was the, the camp meeting service is what we called it. That was the whole, you know, passionate. And, and so the pastor sometimes would just run out of material. Could you imagine, you know, three messages a week? He's preaching on Wednesday. He's preaching on Sunday morning. He's preaching on Sunday night. And I'll never forget, he pulled me in his office. He says, all right, I, my voice is gone. I just, he was just, my voice is gone. He preached like a man on fire, this pastor did. Preached like a, like a, like a, a hornet's nest was just swarming all over. The, you know, he, he was uh, very, very passionate. And so his voice is gone. He said, we're going to do this, Nathan. You're going to lead it. We're going to have a foot washing service. Anybody ever been to a foot washing service? A couple of y'all, okay. Well, I'd never done it. And so I thought, all right, this, this is... This is good. I didn't like to talk in front of people. I was like, so this is better than having to get up there and give a message. Uh, and, and, and so we had, this, we had this basin, and one at a time, people would come down, and, and you had people, you know, wash. It was very, it was a, a powerful service. But then somebody had the idea, Nathan, we want you to, to wash the elders' feet. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. Well, by the time I got to that basin of water, there was stuff floating in it. I mean... It looks like the bath after my son takes a bath, you know, and he just, this is like, you couldn't see to the bottom of it. And then the, the elder that I got picked to, you know, to, to wash his feet, he was an older gentleman, and he's passed, passed away now. Great, great man. But when he pulled those shoes off, y'all, I about ran out the door. I mean, it looked like Shrek's feet. Do you remember that? And I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, okay. I was like, all right. You know, I was. So I pulled my, you know, I pulled my sleeves up and just started praying and hope for the best. And I, I washed his feet. 
But I'll never forget, you know, it was a very somber, I mean, people were weeping, people were crying. And in that day, you know, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, in that day there were no automobiles, right? It was dirt roads, and it was horse and carriage, and most people wore sandals. So could you imagine what their feet looked like and what was on their feet? There's horses. Nobody was going around cleaning up after the horses. They just got pushed to the side of the street, and that's where people walked. But I remember in that service some of the breakthroughs that happened in people's lives. Because when you get down and you, I think the, the, I think the picture is, is, a, is a picture of humble service to someone. You take your title off. I'm not pastor anymore. I'm not priest anymore. I'm not whatever. Whatever your title is, Jesus said, I'm getting rid of my title. I'm getting down and I'm going to wash. I'm going to serve you. And I found in my life that most people are walking around with so much shame. They don't need any more put on them from the church. They don't need any more stuff put on them from me. That most people have so much junk on their life just from living just from walking the streets, just from being alive, people are walking around with weight and pain. And we're quick to judge people, but we don't know their story. And I think what was happening when Jesus was washing their feet, he was listening to their story of how they got there and the pain that they've been through. And they left their families and they left their jobs to follow after this man and everybody has a story and everybody has stuff in their life that they don't really need the church to add more on to that and when you wash somebody's feet when you really listen and you really serve someone and you get past the outside and the exterior and maybe where you're different and where you don't like about them or maybe where they don't, you know, where there's things that are uncomfortable because we all have that stuff when we're vulnerable. When you wash someone's feet, you find out why they walk the way they do. And then you can bring healing. And then you can bring help. And then you can bring the cure. I had a teacher tell me one time in seminary, he says, Jesus earned his right to be heard. He earned his right to be heard. And he was the son of God. He didn't have to feed anybody. Right? He didn't have to heal anybody. He didn't have to wash anybody's feet. He had all the answers. But he didn't do it that way. He fed the 5,000. He reached down to those that were broken. To the woman caught in adultery, he got down in the dirt with her before he corrected her. He earned his right to be heard. And I think for the large part, our, the church has lost a lot of its influence in our culture because nobody wants to listen right now to us. Because all they hear is judgment. And all they hear is, well, you got this wrong, and this ain't right. And a lot of times, people usually already know that. They need some solutions. They need some good news. And that's how it was for me. I remember walking into a church looking like, man, rough, rough. Like if I sat next to you, you would make sure your wallet was in your pocket and your purse was closed. Like I was not, I mean, it was rough. I mean, I, I'm, I will never forget it. But it was over meals. 
it was people that were just so kind to me and compassionate and inviting me into their home and family. It was in those spaces where I received that truth that I really needed. I'm not just saying, just, you know, let everything go, just case, sarah, sarah, but whatever will be, will be, oh well. But, but no, it's speaking truth in love. And a lot of times we never get the opportunity to speak the truth because we're, we're, we're not loving people, I think, the way God has called us to love people. Is this, is this, is this all right? Y'all, okay, y'all ask this question, all right? I got to keep, yeah, this is, this is your, your, your question. And so when we, when we wash somebody's feet, we find out why they walk the way they do because every person has a story. Every person's been through some stuff. And a lot of times, nobody's taken, the, nobody's taken the time just to sit down and listen. We live in a, in a culture where, like, you can't disagree. Like, if I disagree with you, we're enemies. If you don't vote the way I vote, I can't go to lunch with you. If you don't walk the way that I walk, if you don't believe the way that I believe. And I don't, I don't see that in the Bible. I see people agreeing to disagree, and I see Paul and I see the disciples just going crazy out of their way to love people where they are and to wash feet and to influence a culture that ended up throwing them in prison and ended up persecuting them and ended up hurting them, but in their last dying breaths, they spoke out words of love. Father, forgive them. And so how did Paul do it? He... There's a few verses that I want to read together. Verse 14, 15, and 16 of Romans 1. The first thing that he says, I think this gives us kind of his attitude towards culture. He says, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. I think he says, I, I do have an obligation to bring the good news to the culture. As a Christian, what's my responsibility? I think we do have a responsibility to stand for truth. I think we do have a responsibility to let people know why we live the way that we live and why we believe what we believe, that we do have a responsibility. And, it, and it's as simple as this, not, not memorizing the Roman roads of salvation. Maybe you have already. It's not, you know, you can do that by just simply sharing your story. That is the most powerful thing that you have when it comes to sharing about uh, your faith and sharing about what God's done for you, people can argue scripture all day long, and I really don't like to do that. Now, I'm not the pastor to do that with, because I, I, I don't like arguing theology, but someone can't argue with a changed life. When you tell someone, hey, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was an addict, but I've been, I've been clean for 11 years right? I once used to really struggle with depression and through the help of godly counseling and, 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 the, and the power of God in prayer, man, I've been set free. When you share your story, not only is it, is it, does it help you, not only does it encourage you, but somebody can be set free from your story. Somebody's life can be completely changed if you're willing to just, if you just share your story. How has God worked in your life? Not in your notes, but in the book of Revelation chapter 12. They overcame the enemy, right, by, by, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their, their testimony. They were testifying. They were talking about what God was doing. That, I mean, the, most of the, 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 the letters that Paul wrote, they got circulated throughout the church. Some of them were correctional, but most of them were, look at what, look at what the Lord has done. Right? Look at what God is doing. Be thankful. Be celebrate. Look at all that God has done. So, and so Paul says, I do have an obligation. And I think as a Christian, if you're not a Christian in here this morning, then just take this with a grain of salt.
But as Christians, we do have an obligation. Paul says, I have an obligation to, to share the good news, to share the gospel. And then the next verse, he says, that's why I'm eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome and everywhere. And so I think the second piece of that, I'm, I'm, I'm obligated, but it's from a heart that, that, that is, is, is excited. It's not like a duty thing, right? I'm, I'm eager to share the good news because I know that it's life-giving. Amen? I don't know if there's better news on the planet than the gospel. That, 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 I, you know, that, that God can take someone who's completely lost and broken and turn their life around, that there is a God in heaven, that we're not alone, that there's a God who loves us, that's for us and cares about us. And Paul was eager to share because he was sharing from an overflow of what God was doing in him. He wasn't sharing from an overflow of YouTube videos on his political stance. He wasn't sharing from an overflow of theology or an overflow of what he learned in his mind. And he was extremely smart. He was sharing from an overflow of grace and an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. And he wanted everybody to know. Y'all okay this morning? Am I, am I, am I, I know I'm going to make some people mad this morning, right? I'm ready for it. He was eager to share. Let me, the best way I can say is it wasn't a, a duty, it was a delight. It wasn't something that he felt like he had to do because the church said, you need to do this. I need you to go and witness to 10 people this week. Come back. I'll check your report card, and then you can go on, right? Like it was an assignment in a classroom. It wasn't, it wasn't that wasn't his, his attitude. His attitude was just, man, I'm so thankful and grateful that here, here he was going around, had a letter from the king to kill Christians, got knocked off of his donkey, come on, on the road to Damascus, and completely turned around. Now he's doing the opposite of how he began his life, and he just wanted to tell somebody about it. He was eager to share. And then here's the last piece here, verse 16. This is the thesis statement of the book of Romans. It's Romans 1, 16, and then he explains it for the rest of the book. He expounds on it. He says, I have an obligation I'm eager to share what God's done in my life. And you've got those stories as well because I know God has worked in your life. But then he stands up and he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God to salvation to those who will believe. And so the last piece, I think the best way that we could say it is he was eager to share. I'm eager to share the good news because I know that it brings God's power on the planet. And I want to see that happen. And I think the best, you know, before we leave, before we pray, I want to just illustrate it this way. Because what I don't want is you to leave church just so mad at the culture, right? And I've listened to sermons and, 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 it, and I've, I've listened to them and I've felt, man, gotten angry at what's happening some of the, the decisions that are being made and things that are happening in our world and, and I think that's it's okay but what I would rather you feel when you leave church is to be so overwhelmed with the grace and goodness of God so excited about what God is doing that the, that what's happening in the culture perils in comparison so imagine it this way you've got two people you got two men two chairs 
And one person is a person that lives their life with the Bible. We'll say it's this left chair. This is the person with the Bible. This is the person that's had an encounter with God. This is the person that, that knows the gospel, that know, they can tell you, they can quote John 3, 16. They know the Romans road to salvation. They've had some kind of encounter with God in church that's changed their life. They share their faith. They do the good things, right? Like that, the, the person with the Bible. And then you've got this person, that, the person without the Bible. Now imagine for a moment that this room right here is all there is in our world. It's just us in this room. Nothing outside of these walls. The person without the Bible gets up and he goes out and he explores the world. And he writes what he finds. And he writes journals and he writes books because he's found all kinds of awesome stuff in this world. And so he's writing science books and he's writing textbooks and he's writing medical journals because he's found out stuff about himself in the process and he's sampled things and he's studied things and he's found all these, this, this life in this room, but there's nothing outside of it. And he comes back with these books and he sits down next to the guy with the Bible and he says, hey, I found everything there is to know in this world of ours here. It's awesome. I found out we got a heart that beats and puts blood through our veins and I found out that there's a clock in the back and, and I found out that uh, you know the pews are kind of comfortable and I've researched and found all that there is to know in this world. I've spent my life doing it. But then the man with the Bible takes his books and says, yeah, but you're, you're missing something. Because the person with the Bible would say, I know that you've documented the color of the walls and the, and the content and the texture of everything in this world that we know, but you've missed one thing. The person with the Bible would say, there's a world that's in this world that's invisible. That's just as real as the world that you see right here. And not only that, it influences the world that you see. Well, the person without the Bible can't understand that. They don't know what you're talking about. They live a life where all that you see is all that exists. And when we go away, when we cease to breathe, it's just darkness and that's it. But the chair that I would love for you to sit in every day of your life is this chair. Because say for instance, that little clock in the back does stop working. The guy without the Bible thinks, well, I gotta figure this out on my own. I know that clock, I've taken it apart a million times. I'm gonna climb back there and fix it, right? I can handle this, I can do this. Well, the guy without, with the Bible says, hang on a second, I know you can do it, and I know you can get that clock going, but let's pray to the person that created the clock. Let's pray to this invisible God that, that right now influences everything we see in our world and, and, and everything we don't see. And I think a lot of times me, as a person with the Bible, I live my life like this. As a person without it. I try to reason and find a way in my own strength to fix things and when stuff happens, I almost lived kind of, well, if I can't fix it, then I guess I'm at the end of my road. But how do we influence culture? We stay in this chair as much as we can. 
because you're going to have an opportunity this week. You're going to hear somebody talking about something going on in their life, a diagnosis, depression, discouragement, anxiety, addiction, a world that's hurting that seems like it's not working. And there's a lot of people in this chair trying to figure it out the best that they can without the Bible. But I'm telling you, you, you have something different. You have the ability to say, I know it looks like it's over, but there's always more to the story. I know it's getting dark and I know it's getting dim and I know culture seems like it's going the wrong way, but right before, I mean, when it gets the darkest, my Bible says that joy comes in the morning. That right before, like right in the, the worst moment in history, that's when God likes to step in and do his best work. The person with the Bible in his everyday life, in her everyday life, is living with this attitude of faith. Now, we don't discount what this person has found in the world. We don't discount the medical books and the science books because all that constantly changes, right? And there's some good things in there, but we want to live as much as we can every day that God is not, he's not finished. That the gospel is good news. That even in a world of really bad news, constant bad news, that we can take this good news and bring it into our worlds and our communities. Now that might get you ridiculed. That might get you made fun of. I got called a Bible thumper this week, actually. And I was like, thank you. You know, I guess, I mean, if you find a better book for organizing civilization and it speaks of humanity, I'd love to know what it is. But yeah, I think the book, I think the Bible has some answers for where we're at right now in this world. And instead of living with this, this perspective of judgment or perspective of, well, I guess whatever, whatever's broken can't be fixed. And if it is going to be fixed, man's going to do it. It's saying, no, I think there's a better option. I think it's this chair. And this is what I want you to do. Just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father, we thank you so much for your, your presence. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us alone in this world. You've given every person, God, unique gifts and talents. You created everyone in, in your own image. And what an incredible privilege that we have to know you and to walk with you, to live this life as a person with hope in the darkest situations. We have good news to share with the world. And so Lord, I pray for every, every person in this room this morning, God, that, that you would fill us all to overflowing God, that your grace would just fill our hearts today. Lord, let us leave encouraged and strengthened. But also pray, Lord, that you would give us a boldness to not be ashamed. Because I know it's easy to stay quiet sometimes and it's easy to just take a back seat and it's easy to just remain silent. But, but Lord, I think we have a message that the world needs to hear, a message of faith and a God who is there and a God who exists and a God who loves us. 
So Lord, help us to see and seize those opportunities as we're with family, God, during Christmas, as we're working, as we're in our community. Help us to be known as those that, that serve, that serve until it hurts, that will, that will humble themselves, that will go out of their way to, to do things that maybe most people wouldn't do. Why? Because we have some good news to share. Lord, we just thank you so much that you're not asking us to do anything that you haven't already done. And so help us be a church, Lord, that, that serves and that's known for serving. Help us to be a church that's known for loving well. Help us to be a church, Lord, that's known for reaching to those that maybe are unreached. That go, I mean, doing all that we can. We just thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen.